Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Marty Durbin, president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Global Energy Institute. But before we get into that, I'll have a quick discussion with our energy security analyst and energy security forum manager, Joe Kalman, about some of the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? I'm doing excellent, Kelly. You know, uh, lots of stuff going on here in Calgary. I uh, just saw a few people at uh, a great event that I'll talk about in a little bit. Things are, uh, things are moving along. Great. What's in the news? Let's uh, start off with a familiar story if you're from Alberta. And this is, of course, the Western Canadian Select West Texas Intermediate Differential. Uh, As of October 11, 2022, a barrel of WCS heavy sour crude for November delivery uh, was trading at more than $31 US below a barrel of WTI light sweet crude. Disturbingly, this differential is far larger than the $23 differential between Urals and Brent indicating that the constraints on Canadian crude are more severe than all the sanctions on Russian crude. Uh, We have to keep in mind, however, that heavy and sour crude typically trades at lower prices anyways than light and sweet crude. It costs money to remove the the, uh, sulfur from uh, sour oil and uh, also to uh, upgrade the heavier oils into uh, higher value gasoline and diesel. Uh, According to oil analyst Rory Johnston of Commodity Context, the differential can be traced to several factors in the United States. Uh, The most enduring of these is the ongoing release of sour crude from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve sites are located in salt caverns along the U.S. Gulf Coast, meant to provide crude to the immense local refinery infrastructure. Yeah, most people, I think, or a lot of the people that, that listen to this podcast will understand what the specific gravity of crude oils means and, and sweet versus sour. Sweet, light crude oil generally makes gasoline and jet fuel. And uh, as you get further down the, the gravity chain and the, the impurity strain, it gets into uh, diesel fuel and bunker C crude for ships, etc. But, um, you know, the Gulf Coast refinery spectrum is has always been kind of been there for heavy sour crudes either uh, whether they're from Venezuela Mexico or largely in the last decade and a half from Canada and uh, they're built to handle that crude but currently there's a whole bunch of things going on that are making it difficult for that crude to get into the suite so therefore the seller has to find the path of least resistance and that means a discount to his value concurrently the the I think the SPR is about 50-50 light versus heavy and or sour. Um, The grades released tend to compete with WCS if they're using the sour stream for the SPR, which hasn't been, you know, uh, this too will change. You know, you can't, eventually if you continue to deplete the SPR, it'll be zero. And we could go into a long discussion of what that means to U.S. security, et cetera. Um, but that's not the point of this discussion. Aggravating the issue, however, are more micro issues almost in the economy. The Midwestern United States refineries, there was an explosion at the Toledo BP refinery and uh, planned and unplanned maintenance issues at other refineries have reduced capacity. Every year, a refinery has to do a turnaround. 
they shut down production at least for part of it and then uh you know rebuild things that are broke down or and or uh, uh need replacing and compl complicating matters even further there's been a drought you know the world is experiencing droughts we've talked in the last couple podcasts about things that are happening in europe on the rhine but it's also affecting the mississippi and that's resulted in barges being backed up and a lot of the crude oil from canada goes down if it's not on rail or the existing pipeline system it's on barges or it was partly barged to st louis and loaded on barges to go down into the texas gulf um so that's where the excess of of uh, canadian crude goes i could sum up this whole discussion and make this a real easy equation and i'll just say it real quickly kxl pipeline yeah i agree uh yeah so i'll guess back to one simple fact Canada is heavily exposed to a relatively narrow path of crude oil exports into the United States. Uh, we can effectively be considered captive domestic U.S. production. And, you know, even another pipeline that goes into the States would diversify our export options. And of course, more pipelines to the Canadian coasts, either west or east, would further diversify Canadian options for selling our crude oil. Yeah, in Canada, as oil producers, we are captive to security of demand. Uh, so moving on to the wider world, we should uh, talk about the changing relationship of the United States to the Middle East. So last week, OPEC Plus agreed to a cut in crude oil production quotas by 2 million barrels per day. While the actual cut will be a bit less than 1 million barrels per day, and recent signals of global economic slowdown may actually justify a production cut, the Biden administration suffered a serious loss of face due to the group's decision to snub American calls to maintain production. The move by OPEC, and in particular the states of the Persian Gulf, which will be responsible for the actual production cuts, triggered blowback in Washington. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden warned of consequences for the move. Interesting, but what's the, what's the U.S. going to do to punish the Gulf states? There's been talk about using legislation to take aim at oil cartels or cutting military support for Saudi Arabia, but both options seem slightly in the extreme and could trigger escalatory moves by others in the Persian Gulf or Saudi Arabia. At this point, the Gulf states have significant leverage, in my opinion, considering how sensitive the American public is to gasoline prices and inflation. As I said last week, gasoline price is the needle. Um, there's a question about how much leverage the United States has over Saudi Arabia now that the U.S. is looking to pivot to Asia. I think it's important to talk about the recent U.S. pullback from the region in the context of the Abraham Accords. For those who are unaware, the Abraham Accords are a major diplomatic change brokered by the Trump administration, which normalized relations between Israel and the Persian Gulf states of Bahrain and the UAE. I see the Abraham Accords as the beginning of a new security arrangement in the Middle East in preparation of longer-term U.S. disengagement from the region. Simply my opinion. We can expect greater cooperation between the Arab Gulf states and the heavily militarized uh, Israel in balancing Iran and to a lesser extent Turkey in the Middle East balance of power. This is the shifting sands of uh, the great power competition and uh, changing world order. It's interesting and uh, there's a lot of apprehension around here. Absolutely. Uh, nevertheless, the United States is definitely still a major player in the Middle East geopolitics. Uh, so it will continue to have deep business ties and, uh, of course, still have military in the region. Uh, it recently played a key role in brokering a maritime border agreement between Israel and Lebanon in order to open up a few gas fields for eventual export into Europe. Uh, so we really shouldn't count the U.S. out at all in the region. But 
uh, like you said, I, I think that there's some significant changes happening now that the United States is taking a more backseat role in the Middle East. Thanks, Joel. Those are really interesting developments. And you said you had, where were you at lunch? What's going on? So I just got back from an event which featured uh, former German Minister for Economic Affairs and Energy, uh, Peter Altmaier. So Peter was speaking to a crowd of Calgarians here at the TELUS Convention Center uh, for a U of C Haskane School of Business event. Uh, he said a few interesting things about German long-term energy strategy and policy. About discussions around coal and Germany's long-term plans for uh, the coal plants that it restarted, uh, Altmaier made the point that uh, coal power doesn't fit in with its long-term energy policy. It doesn't have the rampability of gas-fired power plants. And so we could kind of see uh, this coal ramp up as a bridge between the current point where uh, there's a serious shortage of Russian gas and into the future where there's more long-term LNG supplies to allow Germany to fire up its uh, natural gas-fired power plants again. And further, uh, Germany's larger strategy, which he was talking about, is to use gas in power generation and industry before eventually switching to hydrogen. Now, this two-phase power and industry transition, he said, is a very long-term plan that Germany's been thinking about for many years. So over the next 25 years, this is going to be a gradual transition first to natural gas to fill in the gaps of renewables, and then eventually to move from there to hydrogen. And he specifically mentioned steel as one of those uh, industries that will really rely on this long-term transition plan where many uh, steel plants in, uh, in Germany, currently, like most of the steel plants in the world, are relying on metallurgical coal. But you can substitute that metallurgical coal for natural gas, uh, which currently has a major market all over the world, and you, know, you can actually get supplies of it. And then it's much easier to transition from that natural gas to hydrogen. So that's sort of Germany's plan. Uh, the question is, you know, is this a actual reasonable plan given the uh, what we're seeing with the cost of hydrogen and whether or not hydrogen will actually go down in price? But that is what they're talking about. So this fits with Germany's assertion today. Uh, and I think that just came out today that they would accept gas from Russia through Nord Stream 1 if Russia chose to send it. I was expecting Nord Stream 1 to be completely dead after the sabotage, but perhaps if it does get repaired, we might be able to see Russian gas again going to Germany. That's very interesting, Joe, and it really adds to the end of our discussion about uh, current events, and thanks for that. Um, but let's uh, stop there, and uh, we'll switch over to our interview with Marty Durbin. Great. Thanks so much, Kelly. You bet, Joe. For today's interview recorded October 4, 2022, we discussed recent developments on U.S. energy policy and its implications for the future of North American energy. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Marty Durbin. Marty is the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Energy Institute and senior vice president of policy at the chamber. Marty has previously held positions as an executive vice president and chief strategy officer at the American Petroleum Institute and president and CEO of America's Natural Gas Alliance. Marty, thanks so much for joining us today on Energy Security Cubed. Pleased to be here, Kelly. Thank you. Looking forward to talking about uh, uh, North American issues. Let's start off with your take on the recently axed permitting bill championed by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Can you give an overview of the effects that you think this bill might have had 
on energy infrastructure if it had gone through and what are maybe some of the next steps that would be uh, amendments or uh, other bills that could be uh, implemented? Well, I think overall, the, the, the idea of, of, of reforming our permitting process down here, you know, modernizing it, of you know, putting time clocks on it and you know, streamlining the process, it's critical if we want to meet any of our energy goals, whether we're talking about our energy security or the energy transition. <clears throat> so while Senator Manchin's provisions didn't make it onto the reconciliation bill, we're still pushing, we as the chamber and many of our partners are still pushing very hard to see if we can't get something done before the end of the year. Fact is that you had, Senator Manchin had his bill, uh, his uh, seatmate from West Virginia, Shelley Capito, uh, had a separate bill that has 47 Republican co-sponsors. <clears throat> well, they both accomplish the same thing. They do it in slightly different ways. But our point is we've now proven in both the House and the Senate that there's bipartisan support for improving the, the, the permitting process. So let's not lose the opportunity now to get this done. As I said before, it's one thing for, for us as, as Americans to say, oh, look, we made all this great progress on our bipartisan infrastructure bill and the CHIPS Act to get uh, you know, semiconductors built here. And uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has all these great incentives for climate and clean energy provisions. But if we don't have permitting reform and you know, the ability to start uh, producing and processing more critical minerals and materials here in North America, uh, and frankly, we've got workforce issues that need to be dealt with. I'm not sure how we're going to we're going to realize all the great benefits to come out of those bills. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of ways we could go with this. You know, there's like it, all over the. I think in the Western world, the, the infrastructure issue, like in, putting in infrastructure, be, is become almost a non-starter in some jurisdictions because of uh, the regulation and, and permitting requirements. And and Canada and US, U.S. are no different. And I, I, and then you know you're talking about the giant shift change that's occurring in labor going forward. Um, you know, are these the things you think? Like what what what? in effect killed the bill like and 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 as you say is the is the other is the is there is there a hybrid of the of the two things that you think would will get done by the end of the year well i, I do think i mean the, the good news if you will is that there's been a clear recognition across the ideological spectrum that if we want to build anything you know we want to build transmission lines that are going to help us get more uh, renewable power to the demand centers, to the cities. You know, so we're going to have wind, wind farms or solar farms out in, in you know, in more remote areas. You know, we're going to have to have transmission lines and, of course, battery, you know, you know storage. You know, so we've got to be able to, to to build that infrastructure. But for today, we also need to be able to build more natural gas infrastructure, not only to meet you know North America's needs here, but as as you know, we're in a we're, we're in a global energy crisis right now with our you know good partners and allies in Europe you know, paying 10 times plus what we are for natural gas and, you know, watching, seeing the hollowing out of, of Europe's, uh, you know, industrial sector. Um, we've got to be able to, to respond to that uh, and help provide, help, you know, to help provide energy, uh, you know, to our, you know, to our partners. Uh, so the quick answer is yes. I think there's a clear recognition that we're going to have to make changes to the, uh, to the permitting process here. Uh, and again, more of a recognition that we want all, whether it's today's energy or tomorrow's energy, we need more critical minerals and, and, and materials here, here from North America. Um, and I think that we will, we will find a way to continue. If it's not all at one time, we'll continue to make incremental uh, improvements to, to the process. Yeah, let's talk about those things and, and uh, um, 
you noted in a brief in early August, the fact that although the EV tax credits included in the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA are meant to boost domestic production of critical minerals, the Department of the Interior has blocked two new mines which would have produced these things. And what would it take for the United States to streamline that permitting process? Or are we talking about the same thing to allow for domestic production or is it the same problem? It is largely the same problem. And now you having to go through the National Environmental uh, Protection Act. Um, but uh, you know, mining does have some, have some, has some other steps it has to go through. But you know, to your point, we've seen that this administration has already rejected two, you know, two mines in, in North America or in, in, uh, in Minnesota, actually. And there are many others that are, that are pending in Arizona and elsewhere. Again, we're all for making sure we have community input, that the environmental protections are all being considered, uh, and, and I know the companies involved are as well. But at some point, we got to say, if, if our goal is to ensure that we have energy security that then allows us to uh, have a functional and rational energy transition, we have to be able to you know, produce more uh, of those items here. An electric vehicle has four to five times more copper than an internal combustion engine. Um, you know, obvious if we're, if we're talking about lithium batteries. Where is that coming from? So are we just trading what in the past was dependence on foreign sources of petroleum for foreign sources of the critical minerals and, and, and uh, rare earth minerals and all that we need to make the batteries and to that, that will go into all of the different photovoltaics and you know, wind turbines and all the rest. That's not helping us if we're just once again re re replacing one dependence with another. Yeah, it seems like when you when you talk about these things um, globally, uh, both your country and our country seem to lead with our chin. Like I, you know, it's the the uh, uh, we're far behind, and you know, the, not only and mines take a long time to develop, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know, the sooner we get off the high centered here, the better off we'll be. Um, I, I sometimes the huge, I mean the huge opportunity we have, especially when you've got the United States and Canada, the combined resources here from both the mining standpoint, uh, you know, oil and natural gas, uh, and then of course if you pull Mexico into that as well, talk about having the, the opportunity for North America to be the center of, of global energy markets. It's here. Well, and they're very well connected. You know, there's some molecules of natural gas from Canada are getting to Europe thanks to the infrastructure that's been built in the United States. Mexico is about to implement and have in service, had to have it in service in two years, a, a LNG facility, which uh, export facility, which will be connected by pipe probably from TC Energy to ship gas from both these all across the continent. Yes, it, it feels really, really like, what, what are we missing here? Mm -hmm. And I think um, that leads to my next question. And it's a little bit off the mark about these two things, but it sometimes feels that energy and climate policy in the United States, the same as in here is fraught with partisan fighting. But um, I have the sense that there's a good deal of cooperation happening too. Um, and a good example of this is a recent ratification of the Kigali Amendment on hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. How did this piece of legislation get passed? Does it, and does it re maybe represent a template for future climate and energy legislation in the U.S. and in that, and you know, as a codicil in Canada? You know, it's a great question, and, and the quick answer is yes. It is. It, it does provide a model, and not just about you know Kigali and the and the HFCs. Take a one step further back. 
we actually, it was in, at the end of 2020 when we passed what was then was the, the AIM Act. So before we get to the treaty, we passed the legislation that would implement the, uh, the phase out of HFC productions here in the United States. Um, that it rode along with a much larger bill called the Energy Act of, of 2020 uh, that provided all kinds of, uh, of government resources for research, development, and deployment of, of, of various uh, technologies necessary for the energy transition, both in whether we're talking about carbon capture, hydrogen, wind, uh, solar, even advanced nuclear, and what have you. And as part of that, the, 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 this uh, HFC issue came along. The reason I mention all of those things is that in every case, you had bipartisan members that were that worked together. You had, you know, uh, at the time it was uh, uh, Chairman Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, and and Manchin from uh, a Democrat from West Virginia, that brought all of these issues through what we like to call regular order in the committee. Everything had a hearing. Uh, uh, people from both parties were working on each piece of it, and we passed what would have been the most significant, you know, climate legislation ever in Congress at the time. It was. It wasn't recognized as such because we were in the middle of COVID and there was COVID relief bill that was coming out. But to your point, that was you. You had on the HFC issue. Not only you, you had the environmental community that was very interested in seeing a a, a very intense uh, greenhouse gas you know uh, trapping chemical here. Our, our ability to to phase that out, and industries that stand to gain. The you know, U.S. industry has actually been a leader in, in the uh, HFC. You know, before them, HFCs were replacing CFCs. Now they're, they're leaders in what's going to replace HFCs. But if we, don't, if we didn't pass this legislation and then um, ratify this treaty, we were going to be on the outs with the global community and the global marketplace. So this was a, a perfect opportunity where everybody won here. Now, it wasn't simple. There was a lot of back and forth. But that's okay. That's why we're that's the way we're supposed to do these things. So even though the perception is to your question, you know, can't get along on anything, can't get anything passed. I I, I, I can walk you through five, six, seven different you know, really significant uh, uh, advances on climate and energy legislation in just the last two years. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because you know, unfortunately. Oftentimes, and I'm making a generalization here in the media, we only hear the noise about gridlock and bipartisan uh, polarity and or partisan polarity and and nothing gets done. And, you know, it's not right because, you know, you go all the way back to the late 80s and 90s, acid rain and CFCs and HFCs. The, the, the problem I see, and I'm now I'm going to editorialize a little bit because I get to, um, is the timelines are long for these things. And they're the same with with climate change and and the decarbonization if we don't embrace mitigation and and adaptation we aren't going to get anywhere near where we need to be and where we where, where we need to be may not be what those that make the most noise want and that's unfortunate but it's a it's the facts and and i think that uh i i, I really appreciate your candor marty because it gives the listener a better understanding of yes it does get done it takes time and and that's what politics is right um you know kelly i should probably be quick to say well i'm not trying to say it's all simple and easy and that, no that, we know we, 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 we yeah we've got plenty of i think there's a lot more that congress can and should be able to do i mean even things like passing a budget why we make things as difficult as they are you know so i don't i don't want to make it sound like yeah everything's fine it's not but we are making progress i think another thing to point out that to get, to get into one of your to, to your question as well 
in general, and I'm, and I'm stealing this from someone, I forgot who, I, a, 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 an academic recently said it. I think many in our country, especially on the younger, younger side, they've got a very high literacy when it comes to climate and a very low literacy when it comes to energy. They don't understand what it means to provide the energy that's necessary so that it, it, it sounds simple to say, well, we just need to stop using that and only use this. <clears throat> and that's, you know, I'm sure with your audience, we don't need to go into all the reasons why that, you know, that, that's, not, that's not realistic. In fact, we need today's energy to get us to the transition. Um, so. Well, I'll just jump in for a second, Marty. Unfortunately, the leaders of, this, of both yours and my country have, that, had that, have had that mindset for a decade, unfortunately. But I would shudder to think how few politicians understand what energy density is. Um, really, oh, yeah. they, they don't. They just don't mm -hmm. understand it. And this is coming so true in in Northern Europe, and and is on hope and pray that it doesn't get worse here as it, as the temperature changes. But you know, it's it's easy for us to discuss this because we seem to understand. But the but you're right. There's a giant chasm between climate literacy and energy literacy. And I think that that's sort of the purpose of this podcast. And I know all the work you do at the chamber and, and other people to try to, to try to build a bridge across that, because, you know, the future isn't as bad as it, it isn't, it's going to be fine. If we embrace the giant bounty that both these countries have and share them with the world, plus the technologies and the expertise to uh, exploit and then export. But let's get down in the weeds a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. uh, something that might be a concern in the longer term in the U.S. is persistently high natural gas prices, uh, partially caused by increasing exposure to international high. Now, you know, the market, the gas going to go over the market says it's got a better price. But considering how important it is for heating, electricity, and industry, do you have concerns at the chamber about other sectors suffering from this exposure to world markets? Well. Uh, and, and so, yes, we, we, we do. Um, however, I mean, I think that there, there, there's two things I would point out. Um, no question. I mean, we're seeing we've got natural gas prices today that are you know, double what they were you know, a year ago, triple what they were a couple, you know, a few years ago. Um, if you want to call it good news, you know, we still have low prices compared to com you know, competitors around the world and certainly our, 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 uh, our, fr our friends and allies uh, you know, in Europe. So that's, I mean, that's part of the, uh, of the challenge here. I, I, think, I think the other challenge uh, you know, for us on natural gas is self-inflicted. You know, we, we haven't built the, the necessary infrastructure. You know, when you think about the, the, the region of New England uh, that is very dependent on natural gas for electricity, there's not a single pipeline to get natural gas from the Marcellus Shale, just a couple hundred miles down the, down the road into New England. So when the winter time comes, they have to import LNG. In the past, some of that LNG was coming from Russia, but they, you know, it can't even come from the Gulf Coast because of Jones Act reasons, which I will not right. get into. No, but, that, uh, would, that would be another hour and a half. That would be another hour, right. You know, and, uh, um, and we can go in many different directions on that. But my point is that even, even now, if we, had, if we had more pipeline infrastructure, then that, that will incentivize greater production so that in the Marcellus region and other, and other areas, to get pipelines you know, to have the takeaway capacity to get it to whether it's export facilities or into storage or up to New England, you know, what have you. Um, you know, that was one of the big issues that, that, that was uh, central to Senator Manchin's permitting reform. Essentially would have not quite uh, absolutely approved, but uh, would have made it pretty, pretty simple to approve the Mountain Valley pipeline to, to get uh, natural gas 
out of West Virginia in the Marcellus Shale. Marcellus was in Utica, uh, down into the Carolinas and elsewhere. Um, so is the other, could you give us a little more detail if I want to backtrack to the other senator's uh, proposal and, and what does it, wh where would it, where would it take that legislation? Because I, you know, the, although it's very, very uh, fungible and, and uh, pretty good strategically across the North American continent, there are still these pinch points for natural gas, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I think, you know, Senator Capito's legislation had, had many of the same elements as the Manchin uh, legislation, and, and so they pushed a little further or made it very, you know, clearer on, 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 on timelines or, or, or codified, you know, put into law some of the changes that were made in the uh, um, uh, implementation of, of permitting law, the NEPA law that, uh, that the Trump administration had, uh, had put into place. Um, so it's a matter of degree. I would say as far as the basic elements, they were very similar. That's why we believe there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity we have in front of us here. When you've got you know, 47 Republicans that, 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 uh, that co-sponsored uh, Senator Capito's legislation, uh, and the entire Democratic caucus was ready to go with Senator Manchin's, you know, again, unfortunately, they needed 60 votes, and that, that wasn't going to happen. <clears throat> There's, there's, there's got to be the opportunity here for some, all right, so let's figure out what we can get done and move it forward. Because if we want to we take care of both our energy security you know, in North America and the energy transition you know, going forward, we can't get there if we don't have some permanent reform. Yeah, it's, hopefully there's the cooler, well, more temperate heads will prevail. I just got one last question, Marty. Um, sure. And I, it's a, it's an inter it's always interesting to follow, not only is what California is doing, but what the price of gasoline is in the United States. And I know that, you know, 20 years from now, I probably won't be having this conversation. We'll be having a conversation about where you're plugging your car in. But <laughs> in the United States, it's you know, for my whole lifetime, retail gasoline prices have moved the needle. Actually, they are the needle. And no jurisdiction is more relevant than California. I think it would be good if you could give our listeners an overview of the current disconnect between oil prices and retail gasoline prices in the nation, and and the, that sort of corresponds to to globally. Because I think I don't think people quite understand first in, last out, uh, and things like that. Could you give us a little bit of an overview about U.S. Yeah. gas prices? You know, in general, people just—I think—people need to understand. You know, what what goes into the cost of a, of, a, of a gallon of gasoline, and and by far the biggest the biggest cost is crude oil, right? The, the, so, what's the price of crude oil today? You know, and, and and but that takes some time to get through the through the process. You add the, the cost then gets added because you have to refine the oil, and then the oil has to be you know transported, and and at the, at the end at, at you know at the gas station there's a there, there's a margin there which I will tell you is a very small margin for uh, for most retail outlets for gasoline. The other big factor is taxes. You know there's a federal tax on gasoline uh, that hasn't changed uh, in uh, oh what is it now? It's over 20 years. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, so we. We've made many efforts, but uh, nobody wants to. Nobody in Congress wants to be uh, uh, blamed for at, you know, increasing taxes. But that doesn't stop the states. And so, depending on what state you're in, uh, and and you won't be surprised to hear that California has one of the highest uh, uh, taxes on uh, state taxes on on their gasoline. Um, but again, to your to your point, it's not an immediate. Um, uh, if you if you're if you're a retailer, you you have to charge people for what you just paid that that truckload of gasoline that came in. 
So you're, you know, what was the last thing you brought in? Well, that's what that, that's what I've got to recover the cost of uh, for the consumer or from the consumer. So there's always going to be that lag time. Sometimes it's called rockets and feathers. You know, the price goes up fast and it takes a while to come down. Um, but uh, but they do follow. We we saw uh, you know quite uh, it was almost I think 90 days in a row that the the price of gasoline dropped from its peak earlier this summer. Uh, but now we've had a week or so of, uh, of increasing prices again, as we've seen the price of, uh, of crude oil begin to, to creep up again. Do you think that the, in general, and I know this is your job, but it's still, it's, there's a, you know, the, the disconnect between current supply and demand is, is a moving target. And, and there's a lot of uh, dialogue about this, you know, this is all caused by Warren. Eastern Europe and and it's not and um, do the, do you think that your that your uh, supporters and and all of your clients at the at the chamber like all the the businesses do they understand that you know we're headed for high oil prices here in in 2023 the, yesterday the um, uh, the Saudi Aramco uh, huh. uh, CEO made a comment about this and and it's again. Uh, People in the industries understand it, but are, do you think your your clients are aware of what's going to happen here? Um, more and more, um, not across the board. I think it is something that we've in fact, we we just sent out a communication to our members. It wasn't quite that direct, but it kind of said, "Look, the, these issues that are going on in, in in Europe at the moment are not going to resolve themselves quickly." To your point, while war in Ukraine exacerbated the situation in in ways we couldn't have. Uh, you know, we couldn't have predicted. We had very tight uh, energy markets globally before that happened. You know, last year, last fall, I mean, prices of natural gas in Europe had been already uh, at historic levels, but you know, before this happened. So I do think that uh, you know we all need to be focused on the fact that you know this is not a problem that's going to go away soon. In fact, it's likely to get worse before it gets better. We've seen the disruptions in natural gas from Russia, you know, to Europe. Uh, if there are, you know, if, if Europe follows through on, uh, you know, banning uh, uh, the import of Russian uh, uh, oil as well later this uh, th- th- this fall in December, um, that will add more price pressure. Uh, if China, you know, comes out of lockdown and de- and their demand starts going up, that's going to, uh, you know, push prices up again. And of course, now we're hearing, I think, OPEC's meeting today or tomorrow. Um, and reportedly going to announce, uh, you know, further uh, production cuts. All of these things come together to say, you know, energy is going to continue to be volatile and it's going to be high, uh, high prices for a while. All the more reason I think that our governments here in North America need to be focused on what are we doing to ensure that we're providing enough supply into the system, incentivizing that and, and protecting both our own consumers uh, and businesses you know, and families and being able to help our global partners uh, by pro- by providing the kind of energy resources that we're able to provide. Yeah, it, it really can be a, and it seems like a wishful chimera to be. I've been talking about North American energy security for more than a decade. It's there for the taking. Um, I think that I'd like to have you back on, Marty, and again and talk about the differences between the IRA and the the incentives for the electrification of the of the of the vehicle fleet versus what Canada's done, and I think that you know the United States in this, this big giant piece of legislation did not penalize existing sources of energy. Right. Um, there's no car, you, there's no carbon 
there's no price on carbon in the U.S. And, I'm, and that's a whole other discussion we could have. But there's so many things that we can do jointly that uh, it would really I'd appreciate your expertise and to discuss this further at another time. Um, thanks so much for coming on. But before you go, um, we always ask our guests. I'm sure you've heard Colin Robertson do the same thing as what are you reading for uh, to keep your mind off of your current job, Marty? It's interesting or, you or uh, listening or listening to. No, it's it, 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 interesting you ask because it's when, when I interview people for, for jobs, that's always my last question. What are you reading now? What's the last thing you read? And, um, so what I, I, I'll do what I just finished reading, I was actually up in uh, British Columbia in, in August and uh, brought with me the, the book called The Lost City of Z uh, by David Grand uh, about uh, um, kind of turn of the last century explorers in the Amazon. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Great. Marty, thanks so much for coming on. Good to be here, and I'm happy to come back. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. Mm-hmm.